Uh, if I haven't met you, I'm Brian Johnson, and it is great to be uh, speaking this morning. When Amber invited me to do this segment of the Her Story series, I, I was honored to do it. And um, this conversation about Jesus and women and the church is so timely. It's such an important conversation if we want to be faithful to the scriptures and if we want to live into the fullness of what Christ has designed us for in this world. Um, Over the past couple of weeks, Amber has kind of set the table for this whole conversation, talking about the big picture of of the story of God and his people. And I love the the liturgy that was done prior to the uh, communion this morning because it really lays out the whole... uh, whole of of our salvation history, beginning with creation. When God created man in his image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, right? And these these creations, male and female, were uh, co-creators, co-rulers together uh, over the creation that God had given to us. And there, you can see this mutuality even in the order as uh, the first woman came from from man as, as Adam was put to sleep and God took a rib out of Adam and created this new uh, complementary being, a woman, this co-creation. And then since that time, all men have come from women. So there's a mutuality here that enables oneness at the very deepest level. This was God's design. But the design, as we read earlier, was broken by sin. Uh, by the fall. The first man and woman didn't quite trust God, and, and the first relationship to be broken um, was marriage. And we can read about that in the early chapter of Genesis, where Adam and Eve, after disobeying God, uh, the, the relationship with God was stra- uh, fractured, but the relationship between Adam and Eve were also fractured. Um, they felt shame. They began to blame each other. Uh, and there was this distancing that happened, emotional distance, and uh, a, 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 a trust barrier that was put up suddenly. And as you read the text, and as you think about what uh, the story of, of creation and fall uh, tells us, you can see that after the fall, and only after the fall, there's this hierarchy of gender that begins to develop, where man is holding power over the woman, and the real bummer of it is that the woman still desires the man, right? So you've got this, uh, this challenging situation because of the fall. But God, in his love for us, continued to pursue us, even when we were uh, disobedient, even when, when the relationships had been fractured by sin. He gave us laws to live by, and, and I love uh, the message we had last Sunday that... that uh, God made divine accommodation to continue relationship with us even in the brokenness of our sin. Um, He gave us an old covenant, which we call an old covenant now. But this old covenant uh, was patriarchal. And the mark of the old covenant, as we learned last Sunday, uh, was really a mark for Jewish men, circumcision. Women were left out. Gentiles were left out. Uh, This wasn't the ultimate solution that God had, and so in the fullness of time, he sent Jesus into our world. 
And Jesus was born, and when he began his public ministry, he began raising eyebrows right away, right? With who he hung out with, with who he talked to, eating with sinners, valuing women, teaching about a new kingdom. And then just before Jesus was uh, brought to trial and was crucified on the cross and rose again, he announced a new covenant, a new covenant that would be made through his blood shed and his resurrection. And the new covenant in his blood would disarm the power of sin once and for all, and it would provide a way for us to be restored to the kind of community and the kind of relationships that we were designed for in the first place. And so this is really good news. It's great news for those of us who are Gentiles, and that's most of us, right? It's great news for those of you who are women, and there's a few of you out there too. Um, So this is where we are when we come to this text in Ephesians 5 today, and if you have a Bible uh, or a device, uh, I'd invite you to pull it up, and um, Paul is writing to the young church in the city of Ephesus to instruct the believers there how to live into this new covenant that Jesus had made possible. And uh, we're going to look at chapter 5 in particular this morning. Chapter 5 is all about being imitators of Jesus, of no longer living in the dark shadows of sin, but living as new creations in the light of Christ. New creations as Christ's people, especially uh, within the family. And so as we come to Ephesians 5.21, here's what it looks like in my Bible. I actually took a picture of of the the page because I want to point something out that I think is really helpful as we understand what Paul is saying here. As you look at uh, just the image, and, and your Bible may be like this, it may be a little bit different, but in many versions, verse 21 and 22 are separated by the heading that says wives and husbands. Um, And then verse 22 kind of starts a new paragraph with a command that says what? Wives, submit to your husband. A lot of the men are responding. So wives, submit to your husbands. Catherine, Mandy, Amber. I won't say Cheryl. but um, So this looks pretty straightforward, right? I mean, it says it right there. It's a command. It's clearly, it's right, you know, the beginning of this paragraph. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, um, this thing about wives and husbands and then this command seems to make it very clear that wives are to submit and then the implication is that husbands are in some way to be in charge. Husbands are in some way, some way to have authority over their wives. And so, This has been a fairly common teaching about marriage in many evangelical churches over many decades. Um, Are any of you old enough, like I am, to remember a guy by the name of Bill Gothard? Um, Really, I'm the only one? Bill Gothard, not Bill Gaither, um, not the singer, but Bill Gothard. He was a popular teacher in the 1980s, although less popular here than I thought, Um, But where I grew up, he filled auditoriums with his teaching about God's design for husbands and wives and families. Now, here is what Bill Gothard's understanding of Ephesians 5 looks like. If you uh, look on the screen, what he would do is frame 
the, uh, the teaching about the family uh, structure around umbrellas of protection or umbrellas of authority. His word for protection is really a, a word for authority. Um, now, I don't know if you like this image, um, but my guess is that not everybody's going to jump and say, hey, I love that. Uh, what, what Gothard was teaching is that the husbands live under Christ's protection or authority and are responsible for making decisions for the family. The wife lives under her husband's protection or authority and is responsible for children and the home. And then, of course, children live under the wife's authority. The funny thing is here that Gothard also talked taught that the wife's access to God goes through who? Her husband. (laughs) We really could have fun with this, you guys. Um, Now, here's the really funny thing. Gothard was never married. Okay? And, and yeah, you're shocked. And he actually got in trouble later, but he had a huge influence on a lot of evangelicals uh, 30 years ago, okay? I really want you to understand that his teaching is not in isolation. He represents a a stream of thinking in the evangelical church and, and in the Christian church in America that has had a big influence on how we understand the roles of husbands and wives and families, now, this structure probably raises a lot of red flags for people today. We don't live in a, in a world in which this is, uh, you know, re- receives applause by everybody. Um, but it didn't sound that weird to some of us who grew up in certain churches. And, in fact, it sounded sort of spiritual to some of us who were churchgoers back in the day. Uh, it sounded spiritual for my brother-in-law, whose name was Roy. Uh, Roy married my second oldest sister, who is uh, about 10 years older than I am. So I was uh, 10 years old when they got married, and, and Roy was a pretty cool guy. If you can imagine kind of the post-Beatles era, you know, Roy had a pipe and uh, drove a British sports car, and he would let me drive his cars and motorcycles when I was like 11 and 12 years old, long before I had a license. Um, he was a great musician, He was a gifted artist, and he had a good job. He was an illustrator for IBM. And he was also a committed Christian. He was a godly man trying to be a godly husband to my sister and a godly father to his three little girls. But in the early 1980s, Roy locked on to Bill Gothard's teaching. And he attended his seminars which were frequent. He bought his books and his workbooks. And he tried to structure his family under this biblical, and I use that word in quotes, this biblical model of authority. Well, here's the thing. When we begin playing with this kind of gender hierarchy, it always leads to issues of power and issues of control. No surprise. Uh, And Roy had developed some strong convictions through Gothard's teaching on how my sister should act as a godly woman. How she should dress. What kind of jewelry was appropriate for her. And who she should hang out with. Now, 
My sister wasn't a young person at this age. She was 33 years old, and she had some things she wanted to do that she was starting to run into problems in conversations with her husband about. And one of those things was she wanted to get her ears pierced. She was 33 years old, didn't have, have any pierced ears, and um, thought, I really want that. And um, Roy, of course, did not think that was appropriate for his wife. After all, he was the authority, the protection over her. Ephesians 5.22, right? He was in charge. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Isn't that what it says? A little bit of a dilemma. Well, Roy was a good man. But this relationship that was, uh, you know, they were, had been married now for over a decade. But the relationship was developing into something that didn't feel mutual anymore to my sister. And she wisely began seeking a counselor and started meeting with a Christian counselor and realized that she need, needed to make some decisions on her own. She needed to to uh, not simply concede everything to her husband. She decided to have her ears pierced. And um, my brother-in-law, Roy, came home from work that evening and and saw my sister and and noticed her pierced ears, and he said, I need to go think about that. My sister went out later that evening and found him. He had taken his own life. Now, I I share that not to create drama. Clearly, there was more going on in Roy's heart and mind than some bad theology. But I share that because for me, as a 23-year-old husband and dad, it was a very formative moment in my own understanding of what it means to be a man and a husband. I was a lot like Roy. You know, I, I too had married a wonderful Christian girl who was way smarter than me, but I had power to dominate her. I did. My tongue was sharper, my personality was more aggressive, and most of all, both Cheryl and I had been raised in families and in churches and in a culture that favored the authority of men. Now, Cheryl will tell you that in our first few years of marriage, um, I had strong opinions on a lot of things. I mean, a lot of things. Uh, Ridiculously silly things. It was just who I was. I was very self-confident, and I thought I actually knew best about most things in the world. Um, She loved me anyway. But Cheryl would submit to my power if I pushed hard enough. And I knew how to push in kind of church-acceptable ways. The problem is I hated what exerting my power did to her. And I didn't like what it was doing to us. I knew that it was going to drive a wedge between us emotionally and spiritually and physically, and I didn't marry her to control her. I married her because I really longed for what Paul is describing in Ephesians 5, 
It is a oneness that God designed the man and the woman for at creation. It is a mutuality that brings joy to the deepest level of life, of sharing life with a person at a deep level. Not just being physically present with a person, but being one with a person. It's about reflecting the compelling love of Christ in the deepest of human relationships, which is the marriage relationship. So let's again look at, at the Bible here um, and see what's going on because it's not exactly clear in some of our English translations. Did you know that in the original language in the Greek that verse 22 is not a command at all for wives? Do you know that? It reads that in many English translations. But in, in, in the original language, it, it's not even a command. In fact, 22, verse 22 in our Bibles is not a separate sentence at all. Um, over the years, uh, you know, as, as the Bible is translated, we, we add punctuation marks because the Greek didn't have much punctuation. Um, and we add titles to the different sections of the Bible that are our editions. And we've added the chapters and verses. Now, I am a big fan of all of that because it makes the Bible much more readable in most instances. But the, the, sometimes the meaning of the text gets lost in translation. Verse 22 is actually part of one long sentence that begins at verse 18. And that's what I've circled out of my Bible here. That's one sentence in the original Greek. And here's how it would read. It says, Do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay? I think there's a, a slide there that you can, you can see. And what you see is that the, the very beginning there is the, the, the theme of, of this sentence. Do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then what uh, Paul writes are multiple ways in which we are filled and live this new life out. And it says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking in psalms and hymns, singing, making music in your heart, giving thanks to God for everything, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your husbands as you do, um, for the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church's body, of which he is Savior. So to be filled with the Spirit means submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That, that phrase before verse 22 is hugely important. And it says, wives, continue submitting as you are already doing, for the husband is the head of the wife. Shoot, there's that tricky word, head. Doggone it. Because head, right? It means authority, right? If you're the head of Ford Motor Company, you got some authority. Fire people, hire people, change the direction, get rid of the Taurus, you know? <laughs> if you're the head of state, you have an entourage around you and are flying around on private jets, and people respect you. Sort of a, reaffirms what Bill Gothard was teaching here, doesn't it? For the husband is head of the wife. Is the husband in charge of the wife? Well, actually, no. Again, sometimes things get lost in translation. 
if we're talking about authority here in terms of headship as a ruler, it would be a different Greek word. It would be the word archon. But the word that is used, that Paul uses here, when he says that the husband is the head of the wife, is the word kafali, which means source. It's a reference to Eve being made from Adam by God's design. You know, there was a teaching in the ancient uh, patriarchal culture that believed women actually came from an inferior source than men, that they were actually born of different sort of uh, stuff. Um, But Paul here in Ephesians is declaring, no, that's not the case at all. The husband is the source of the wife, just as Christ is source of the church, his body. Wives and husbands are of the same substance. They are designed for mutuality. They are designed to be submissive to one another and, and supportive for one another. Now, I've had people leave the church over the years, right? Because they think from verses like this that we are not living out the scripture because we are challenging the fact that some people say that husbands have authority over their wives. What Paul is really saying here argues exactly the opposite of that in that husbands and wives are made of the same thing for mutuality and they are to be submissive to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's keep going. Verse 25. It says, husbands. Now, okay, now we get to the command part. There is no command in this text for the wives. There are multiple commands for the husbands. That's appropriate given the culture that we're talking about here. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church, holy and blameless, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. Um, in this same way, Paul writes, husbands ought to wive, uh, love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. We're talking about mutuality here. Um, You're probably aware that in the Greek there are three different words for love. I'm sure many of you have heard that. You know, there's the word eros, which is... uh, the word that I use when Cheryl and I are out on a hot date and we're sitting across the restaurant from each other, and I said, I love you. And it's basically a word for desire, right? It's where we get the word erotic. Um, there's the word filio. This is like, uh, Jason, man, love you. Brotherly love, Philadelphia, right? Um, filio. It's, a, it's an affection. It's a brotherly love for one another. Then there's this other word that is in the Greek, called agape, which you know of. The self-giving love, a sacrificial love, the love that Jesus demonstrated for us when he came and died on the cross. Now here's something I did not know until I was doing some work for this uh, message. When Paul instructs husbands to love their wives in Ephesians 5, this is the first time in ancient literature that men are told to agape their wives. That really shocked me, actually. This is the first time men are told, husbands are told, to love their wives with a self-giving, sacrificial love. 
because the ancient world was not a great place to be a woman. Some of you would say, well, the modern world's not always a great place to be a woman either. But the ancient world was not a fun place to be female. Marriage in the ancient world was not like marriage today. You know, there was some sayings that are quite popular uh, that go back to philosophers uh, uh, before Christ, but uh, it, it, it speaks of what it meant to be a female um, in this time. Men would often have mistresses for pleasure, concubines for their daily body, body needs, and wives to bear legitimate children. That would not be every wife's dream relationship, would it? And even in the first century Jewish culture, which had a much more monogamous ethic, Still, wives' roles were to keep their husbands happy, to meet their needs. They were not educated. They didn't have standing in the courts. They couldn't seek divorce. They could be accused for things without recourse. Wives were at best second-class citizens, even in biblical times. A result of the fall, not because of God's design. But Jesus calls husbands and wives to a dramatically different way of living. He says husbands Agape your wives as Christ agaped the church and gave himself up for it. Husbands, instead of asking how your wife can love, honor, and care for you, ask how can I love, honor, and care for her. That was a new deal. And unfortunately, it continues to be a new deal even in our culture today at times. Paul is instructing husbands to do something countercultural today, or in, in Ephesians 5, and he's calling us to do the same thing today, and that is husbands, submit to your wives as wives had been, have been submitting to their husbands for generations. And it brings up a really wonderful question that I think is a powerful question, right? What if marriages were designed to be witnesses to the world of who Christ is. Because if we can get this right in our marriages, the rest is pretty doable, right? Why is it so hard, guys? One of the things that breaks my heart is when I see husbands and wives sometimes clinging to the broken patterns of the old covenant. You know, when husbands put their own interests instead of their wives. The thing that drives me nuts the worst is when I'm with a group of guys and they talk about their wives in very derogatory ways, as guys can. Yeah, the old lady. This, really? And you married her? Why'd you do that? Is this what you want? Is this the kind of relationship you want? There's so many relationships today that are not fulfilling because we haven't learned to live in the new covenant. Philippians 2, Jesus gave up the glory of heaven and he became a servant for our sakes. And marriage is the same. That's what Paul is saying. As Christ loved the church, husbands, love your wives. Submit to each other. Give up power for each other. And sometimes we don't even know the power that we have that we need to give up. And we need to be more attentive to what it means to live in mutuality and to find the joy that comes 
from making that the reality through the Holy Spirit's power. Living into oneness. This was a totally, radically new thing in the first century. And what's fun about looking at biblical history and and the early church in the book of Acts is that women were coming into the church in droves, in mass. They were drawn to the the teaching of the, the, the apostles. They were drawn to Jesus because in the church, women were no longer second-class citizens. And today, in 2020, almost, in America, women in the church should not be second-class citizens. You know, there's a whole group of people around us who for different reasons are looking at the church and saying, I don't know. And yet, what Paul demonstrated 2,000 years ago is a compelling good news gospel, not just for Jewish men, but for Gentiles, for lepers, for people who had been outcast, for women, half of the world. This new covenant is good news for wives and for marriages. So this October, Cheryl and I will celebrate 40 years together, which is weird because we're only 43 years old, I think. Um, But our marriage has been the place where I've had to die to myself the most. It's, It's just the place that the relationship reveals all of the tough stuff that we don't really want to acknowledge about ourselves, right? It's where my selfishness has been most apparent. But I also have to say that our marriage has also been the greatest joy of my life. And a lot of that's because of who Cheryl is. We've had disagreements, and you ever wake up some days and you just think, I really want to fight today. (laughs) It's not very often, but every now and then, there's just something, I don't know what it is. But as I'm learning to submit, as Cheryl much more naturally submits, the Holy Spirit does this wonderful thing of creating intimacy and mutuality that is a gift from Jesus and a longing for people in our world. God's designed marriage to be a witness to the world to show the power of Christ to redeem divided relationships and restore the image of God between men and women, husbands and wives. Let's close with this last uh, text. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And that word and is actually so that. It's a conditional phrase. The wife can respect her husband. Each one of you must love his wife, agape his wife, so that your wife can honor and respect their husband. I pray that if you are married, or if you will one day be married, you will take Ephesians 5, 
as a great gift and that your marriage will be a marriage that preaches to the world. Lord, we pray that you would make this so in your mighty power through your Holy Spirit. Amen.